Of Jackson Elias, an occasional podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Allwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. Alright, and this week we have taken on the topic of player led games. So, what is a player led game? Yeah, what is a player led game? Chaos! But beautiful <laughs> chaos! <laughs> well, I, as, a, as an anecdote, I can remember when um, we started off Milton Keynes Role Playing Game Society. Mm. And um, nobody knew each other. Well, we, we hadn't really all, all met. And um, I remember distinctly saying that I liked player-led games. Now, I don't really know if I knew what that meant or if I know what it means now. But I do know that everybody else then introduced themselves and said, I like player-led games too. And I was like, no, because I do know some of you and I'm pretty sure you mean something different to what I understand it to mean it's almost like saying i like role-playing games i like combats i like player-led games i like good stories in games i it's just it's just something people like yes you're, you're right on one of those three at least yeah okay i knew i was losing you on one of those maps um, really yes what is a player-led game well as far as i'm concerned it's a game which doesn't follow you know, necessarily a storyline that's set down by the GM, uh, but one which is built up entirely around the player's actions, which involves a very kind of reactive GM role, where the GM is supporting the player's stories as opposed to you know the players playing the GM story. I'd phrase it slightly differently. I'd say that you drop them in the middle of a situation or middle of a sandbox and then watch them fight their way out of it. Yeah, I mean, you know, sandboxes are definitely one way of doing it, mm-hmm. and I, I think we'll probably touch upon a few others, but yeah, I, I think that's a very good point, and one that in the copious notes that I made for this, I never once used the word sandbox, but you're right, I mean, sandboxes are the classic, you know, old-school D&D way of, of doing a player-led game, except, you know, they, they, they're sort of borderline there, because, you know, they, the GM is still preparing, you know, lots of locations and uh, perhaps storylines, and it's, you know, it, it's possible to do a sandbox where, you know, as players, you're just wandering around and you're know, waiting until you, you know, kind of hit one of the pre-prepared storylines that mm-hmm. are there. You're choosing from a list of options. I wouldn't say maybe a sandbox peppered with storylines, but definitely elements that they can bounce off and react against, rather than it just being purely the players that they're bouncing off. Yeah, that, that's that's what I would define it as. Yeah, I, I, and I think that's a perfectly valid kind of player-led game. It's you know, certainly not the kind that I run, but it, you know, it's it's you know, it's uh, probably a more classic experience. Mm. One of the ways that I, I kind of started thinking about what's a player-led game is to think what the alternatives are. What are the alternatives to a, a, a player-led game? I came up with five alternatives. Whether they're things that exist or not, I don't really know. You could have a character-led game. You could have a story-led game. A GM-led game. A game-led game. Uh, I was thinking a game-led game is anything where you've got random tables, really, mm. and the game is kind of dictating where you go next so in old school D&D uh, it was exploring um, through the use of you know random dungeon generation 
So the, the DM didn't really know what was coming up next necessarily any more than the players did. Right. It wasn't until a few years later when we started getting story-based modules, something more akin to Call of Cthulhu scenarios, really. Yeah, and that, that style of game hasn't gone away. There was a, a Japanese game that was published, uh, translated into English uh, a few years back, which I, I guess is vaguely infamous because of the subject matter, uh, called Maid, um, mm. where the, the, the player characters are all maids. Um, but, you know, it, it's a very kind of wacky knockabout uh, comedy game. Uh, but the, um, the, the almost the entire book is random tables. And, yeah, the idea is that the GM kind of sits down and, and just rolls stuff the whole time to kind of come up with all these, mm. these weird combinations of events. You see, I like random tables in context, not, um, not like a whole game full of them would probably make my hair stand on end. But they have a great use in certain games, like two that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, Heaven and Earth 2nd Edition has a mechanic in there, I can't remember if it's Hand of Fate or Hand of Destiny, but you're dealt a card at the beginning of the session that has, for each of the 52 cards in the deck, you have a random effect that you can cash in on another person or a situation or an NPC in the course of the game. And it's, say, a wonderful wild card that you can throw in for a, some really bizarre effects in that, but this case keeps the GM on the toes. Mm. Um, the other one is the um, table in the D100 table in Break Today, um, the Under Armies oh, book. Yes, yeah. So anything from become an avatar to spontaneous combustion somewhere in the next 33 minutes. <laughs> so those are kind of game-led things, if you like. Yeah. Um, it's nobody making those choices. It's the game telling you about what's going to happen in the fiction. Yes. Oh, well, the we other one is player-led games. A GM-led game which is pretty traditional. A homebrew kind of Call of Cthulhu or Dungeons & Dragons type game where you've got a situation and you're, the DM is making it up as they go along or the GM is, is leading the story yeah. and improvising. Um, yeah, it isn't no, necessarily being that reactive to the players. No, I mean, that's a good point. I mean, there is a difference between improvisation and being reactive. A story-led one being more like the traditional Call of Cthulhu scenario where you've got a story and I mean read some of those scenarios and it is kind of a story that your players are going to walk through and I think this is probably what most classic investigative games are mm. because investigations are fundamentally you know stories you're, you're working your way through a set of clues a set of NPCs a set of locations to try to uncover you know pre- certain predetermined secrets and you're kind of participating in it yeah Character-led one as opposed to player-led? I'm not sure there's really a difference. I mean, I'm just splitting hairs here. To some extent, I'd, I'd almost think, of, you know, that Sorcerer, for example, could be you know seen as a character-led game as opposed to a player-led game. So- Sorcerer, the, the players will come up with a motivation, something called the kicker for their characters, um, you know, an event that has just happened to them that they're going to react to, that they've got to react to. But after that, you know, it, it's up to the GM to interpret what that means, to fit it into a backstory, and then, you know, the, the GM drives the rest of the consequences from that. Um, and so, you know, the, the, everything that comes from there is driven by, you know, what the characters are about. But the players, you know, once the play starts, have got surprisingly little control over that, you know, outside of what you'd expect in a traditional role-playing game. And if you contrast that with a game like Primetime Adventures, mm. which I'd say is very much a player-led game, it's much more about directing the narrative as a player. Well, certainly, certainly when you have narration rights over a conflict, yes. So have we got a definition of, of player-led? It's um, Well, I think it's something we'll hone as we go on. But and I think most, it's worth saying, all, all of these 
any game is kind of a combination of the things that we've just talked about. Yeah, and and, and 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 there's yeah there's differences of degree as well. That you know there, there are some games uh, where you know certain GMless games particularly where they're entirely player led because there's no GM to lead things. Mm. Uh, on the other hand, there's you know different scales of things and you know different things you can you know, do within a traditional role playing game to be you know to make them much more player led. We're going to talk about a lot of different approaches to playing. You know, a lot of different tips and tricks can be applied to, you know, uh, more traditional role-playing games or other different types of games. Uh, but the point, you know, the point is that these things aren't for everyone. You know, as we, we we discussed Monster Hearts in the uh, the last game, and you know, Matt made the point that he doesn't particularly enjoy the way that the apocalypse world mechanics work. That's nice understatement. <laughs> which, which is fair enough, even if he's wrong. These things don't work for everyone. You know, in Matt's case, you know, he doesn't necessarily like games that kind of bounce around in unpredictable directions. He wants a more focused, investigative game. That was right. Um, and and while he's wrong, it's still a valid <laughs> point of view. But the point of all this is, uh, yeah, there's no one true right play style. It's just a question of you know finding you know what works for you and your group. Called yeah. Cthulhu, obviously. Yeah, I was going to say, now who's wrong? Yeah. <laughs> oh, so what you're saying is there's different ways of playing Call of Cthulhu. Yes. Yeah, okay, I got it. Yes. Okay. Some, some of which are wrong. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> We've talked about this idea of player input. What do we mean by that? I'd say it's who has the more degree of control over a situation. That's probably at its core what it is. Hmm. One of the key things or definitions of control would be let's say a investigator in Cthulhu makes a spot hidden role the keeper would normally tell them what they find mm-hmm. but what happens if it's the player who gets to define the outcome of the role that says like in a typical indie style right what happens narrate your success yeah yeah. I mean that happened in a, in a game we were playing didn't it yeah in fact it was one that you were running um, the, the, the example that sprang to mind was um, when we playtested Walker in the Waste mm. or rather we were playtesting the 7th edition rules with Walker in the Waste yeah yeah um, where we were in a house up in Alaska, and it was we were looking for some kind of information after we found a body slumped over a typewriter. That's right. And, that's, and I made my spot hidden roll to see I want to find some kind of insight into what's gone on here. You said to me, could you make a spot hidden roll? And I was kind of scratching my head, sort of thinking, well, actually, there's nothing in the book here for him to find. Um, but then you suggested, what about if I make the spot hidden roll? Maybe I'd find a, a journal or a diary or something like that. And I thought, yes, because the guy whose house this is, he was a journalist. It's very likely he would have got something like that. But it didn't occur to me in that moment. Seems pretty obvious, really, but it didn't occur to me at that point. Uh, when you suggested it, I thought, oh, yeah, that, that fits perfectly. So you made the roll and you found it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that, that reminds me a bit of... Um, there, there was an indie game that came out about 10 years ago called Donjon, D-O-N-J-O-N. Mm. And I remember reading an interview with the uh, the creator, uh, Clinton Nixon, if I remember correctly, uh, who was saying that um, one of the things that had come about was... Uh, one of the reasons this had come about was when he first started playing D&D, there was the skill in AD&D to find hidden doors. Yeah. Um, he sort of misinterpreted this as a DM or as a player and thought that, oh. you know, if you made that role, then, then, that, you, then was, you, you, you succeed, then you find a hidden door. Yes. <laughs> and, and that sort of went on. better. Yeah. And, and you could almost do spot hidden roles in Call of Cthulhu like that. You make a spot hidden role, you spot something that's hidden. I think so. Yeah. 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 I just like the idea of doing it on a prearranged dungeon plan and then suddenly go to the, um, the door that connects to the last room in the dungeon. That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> Except the big bads behind the the last door usually yeah minor problem but they're too big to go through the door so it's fine (laughs) but yeah I think having something like that where the player kind of decides 
player doesn't necessarily decide what they find, but um, you know, it inspires the keeper to come up with something. Let's just try to pin down some of these these different types of player inputs are, and you know, the, the different degrees that they can come in. Sometimes it can be fairly small things, like even the more, the more traditional role playing games I've run. I've done this when running Dungeons and Dragons. Is I like to get players to describe the outcomes of the roles they make, even if it's not something like saying that you know the spot hidden role you know has found this hidden diary that you know I as a GM didn't know was there before. I'm talking about more mundane things like that. So that you know, it is just the colour if you're say having a combat. So the critical hit that you deliver. Yeah. Uh, you get you, the player describes it rather than the the. the DM. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So you get to describe your Vorpal sword sliding, slicing through the Balrog's head and this gout of fiery blood coming out and stuff like that. Again, this goes back to you know, the idea of different tastes. Yeah, I, I, I ran a game a while <laughs> back of D&D where yeah, there were some people who were really getting into this and describing their characters doing all sorts of funky manoeuvres and stuff like that. And there was one other player who, you know, we'd go around, we'd have someone describing, you know, in, in excruciating detail their, their acrobatic feats of their characters and all sorts of cool stuff. We'd get around to the next guy and he'd just say how much damage his character had done. Right, OK. <laughs> yeah, it's down to play style again. Yeah, yeah. not everybody wants to do that. No, I mean, that's fair enough. I mean, personally, you know, I, I'd much prefer all that colourful stuff at the table. I mean, that's that's what I play for, all that description, all that visual imagery. Um, Just shame it's in combat. But, you know, it, it does... It, Just an example, Matt. Yeah, it, do, it doesn't have to be in combat. I mean, it, you know... Um, Things like that in a chase scene, for example, yeah. Cthulhu, would be amazing. Yeah, another perhaps more profound effect can come uh, with something that you brought into Call of Cthulhu, which is the idea of setting goals on the roles you make. Yeah, so the player gets to declare what they want to actually achieve from a role, rather than rolling the dice and then having the keeper tell them what they've achieved. Yeah. But the inspiration for that is was the disjunct, the disjunct sometimes when the keeper would say, OK, you need a climb roll, and you'd roll your climb roll, and they'd say, OK, well, you're, you've... you've got 10 feet up now but uh, no i found it quite a lot in social conflicts um you know for example you know if if i was trying to make you know say a fast talk roll or something like that to provoke someone into a fight and i'd make the fast talk roll and the gm wouldn't erase something completely different yes exactly and you're thinking no that's not what i wanted to get out of that role but i succeeded and, and, and now something, you're telling me something completely that, that I'm not interested in is happening as a result? Yeah, or something quite the opposite is happening. Yeah, yeah it's like, why did I even roll the dice? Yeah. yeah. You know, they, they, this isn't a, you know, a huge thing in a game, but yeah, it's not like... But that's about player to, agency, about yeah. being able to have some input into the game. Exactly, but it's not about the players taking over the game. It's just no. it's more a question of streamlining that communication, you know, setting expectations and so on. Uh, I mean, you know, certainly, it does shape the way the outcomes you know go. In that, going back to the example I used a moment ago, you know, you succeed in that, you know, you're going to have a fight with that NPC, which may not be what the uh, the GM had in mind. But as a GM, you've always got the the option to say no when a player says a goal like that. You know, that's not going to happen. Don't bother rolling the dice. It is the antithesis of the the player led game. Is and I'm sure we've all sat in games like this, uh, whereby the GM has got a story. You're a player in the game, and you make dice rolls, but the the GM decides what those dice rolls mean. Basically, you don't really have any input in the story. It's just kind of you're going through rolling dice, and then the GM interprets them, tells you what you do based on those dice rolls, and you're sat at the table thinking, why am I here? Yeah. 
Yes, and and you know, at various points in my life, I've been that GM. <laughs> I've been in games where you narrate what you do, and then the GM talks over you or just reiterates it afterwards differently. Mm-hmm. And you think, well, you totally ignored what I said. You've just done. You've just overrode and told me what my character's doing. Yeah, the, the, there are a couple of moments I can think of that that's happened. Particularly one in a convention game, and I won't play with the. Um, the GM around the game afterwards. Yeah. Let, let's let's uh, not I'll, name names. Fun, funnily enough, I hadn't named anyone, and I wasn't going to. Was it me? <laughs> I won't answer on the ground. I might not survive the ride home. Um, the GM in question was running a scenario, say one of the conventions I go to, and I'd made comment on a couple of instances. I'd like to do something, and so he thought acknowledged that I'd said something, and that went round to someone else at the table. I think okay, maybe missed me the first time, so I, I'll. And another situation comes up, I'd like to do this. And as the light acknowledges me and then moves on to someone else, I'm like, okay, sod you, I'll sit back and just watch what's happening then. And then by the time I got to the end of the scenario, it was, oh yeah, because I would have pretty, pretty much derailed your entire scenario by doing what I was going to do with those two instances. So you just blatantly ignored me, didn't you? Jesus. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, oddly enough, I will not play with that, guy, that person again. So. And another form of that is where, as a player, you say you're going to do something and then people kind of laugh and say, oh, that'd be a bit silly. And it's like, well, if I say I'm doing it, surely my character is doing it, aren't they? Yeah. If they say, mm-hmm. if, if I say I'm opening the door and going in, it's not a matter of debate. Unless you are, unless there's a, another character that is physically grabbing me and stopping me, why, why haven't, why haven't I done that? Yeah. Sometimes that just comes down to clear communication, though. You, know, you may have it can do, initial, yes. You may yes. have that initial reaction, and, and you just make you know be you're a bit more assertive and say, "Yeah, no, I'm really doing that." Yeah, but sometimes that's overridden, and uh, yeah. yeah, it's like you well, you can't it, actually do it. Yeah, in which case, yeah, you know, that, that's another example of a GM I'd never played with again. <laughs> so those are some examples of non-player-led style of play as, as an illustration of what player-led gaming might be like. So in player-led gaming, the GM has really got to listen and go with what the players want to do. And this can start even before play starts. I know, I think one of the fundamental uh, tools in, in uh, player-led gaming is a, a collaborative setup. I was first introduced to this idea through Burning Wheel uh, some time back, uh, which is why I still uh, refer to it as world burning, mm. because that's what Burning Wheel does. Yeah. But it's, it's the idea of you know that, that sort of session where um, you, you sit down at the beginning and work out a lot of the stuff uh, that's going to be in the game with the players. I mean, this isn't quite the same as saying, you know, right, you know, this is all going to be about, you know, finding out that, you know, Lord so-and-so is really a vampire and revealing that secret, you know, right at the beginning. But it's it's more a question of, you know, finding out what kinds of things are going to be important to the characters and building, you know, the, those into the game world, building those into the conflict. I wouldn't say it's essential for a player-led game. Well, it, it depends, you know, the degree in which it's you do it. it. Yeah, right. uh, but, but there are all sorts of different levels i think that first session where you do that and you do character uh, creation is vital now the degree to which you do that you know whether you create the entire game world at that stage whether it's a blank slate before you sit down with the players or whether it is just a question of you know them you know creating the motivations for their characters and perhaps a few npcs that talk into those and you tying those into what you had in mind already I mean, they're two very different scales there, but they're all part of this collaborative creation. Hmm. Yeah, because I was going to say, I don't think that the world-burning approach is 
by any means essential to a player-led game. I think it's it's an option. No, no, but it, I mean, the, what I said was the kind of shared collaborative side of things. So, so this is still a shared collaborative side of things, but it's not full-blown world-burning. Mm. Yeah, and and this this also goes back to the idea we we talked about this when we were discussing Hot War a while back. The idea of creating situations and not scenarios. Mm-hmm. Well, I think indeed, if you've played a, um, a a traditional scenario and you've established characters within that. You could then pick that up afterwards with a player-led game. If the players feel their characters have got some motivations that they want to pursue, go from there, really. You've got a world established. You've got some NPCs already established, perhaps from the leftover from the scenario or whatever. That's a very different approach to saying, okay, you finished the first scenario. Now we're going to do another scenario. Here's another story. Mm -hmm. And often that is the most difficult thing because it can feel okay playing one scenario I and mean, I'm particularly thinking of Call of Cthulhu here I yeah. feel okay playing one scenario because there's a good reason my character's invested in this scenario you don't really need it to feel player led it feels because of the motivation of the scenario if it's well designed ties in with your characters but then once you've resolved that you know have you really then got another life threatening situation that your characters are going to get involved with probably not that's probably been resolved and that that's finished. Yeah, and and you can sometimes have such a mismatched collection of characters at that stage anyway. Yeah, you know, sort of why is and then this... you've got to probably one or two of them have died, and they've got to create new characters that are going to come and join you, and it's like, yeah. why would that be happening? Yeah, why 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 are this antiquarian gangster f- uh, fishmonger and the brother of our dead librarian now going off to Arkham? <laughs> well, basically, they're, they're sitting there and listening to the keeper saying, "Okay, well." Um, you're on the bus to Arkham because you've, uh, you know, you received a letter from your uncle. Who was a haberdasher. <laughs> exactly. But what about the player saying, well, you know, we heard about something, um, you know, down south and I've got this book. You know, I'd like to look into that and see what I can find out about it and pick up threads from, you know, the previous scenario and build on it. Yeah. And that demands the, the keeper to be creative. Uh, but, but, yeah, I mean, I think an essential skill for any GM is the ability to improvise. Um, and yeah, you know, I mean, there's there's different degrees uh, of improvisation there. Uh, some GMs are happy just to make shit up, you know, completely. So you know, sort of say, right, I've got this book, I'm going to go down south and investigate it. Uh, maybe this is something that's hit you completely blindside, but you roll with it. You describe the bus journey down. Um, while you're doing that, the back of your mind is desperately creating some situation tied in with that book while you go down there. And you know there are certain techniques you can use, you know, from you know incorporating the ideas that the players come up with. Sometimes without letting them know, coming up with the ideas you need uh, as you need them, and being prepared to you know flesh those out and you know come up with with more as uh, as required. So you know perhaps um, you've come up with the the absolute bare basics about what that book's leading to. The, the you know that the, the, there's some you know antiquarian in this this you know shop down south who's got some mysterious information and then you know that's going to lead to other events but you haven't quite thought of those yet but if we were playing the game and you know the three of us were, were player characters and and i decided that i was going to go off to new orleans with the, because of this book and what i'd read in it and so on and if we're really playing it player-led then you you might decide your player's going to go off to canada and, and matt might decide that his um character i don't know is going to shoot himself <laughs> oh, he doesn't like combat. Um, <laughs> go on a long sea voyage. Yeah, no, um, no, you're getting sandbags from that. <laughs> but really, 
in a way, you might step outside of your characters and think, hmm, well, why would I join Paul on that, that journey to New Orleans? I can and, get the boat um, from there. Huh? I can get the boat from there. Indeed. Well, I, actually, this is you know, one thing that, that, that you know, speaks to one of my pet peeves uh, as a GM, which is I, I, I find the concept of party play to be completely um, uh, artificial, and it actually irritates me sometimes, the fact that you've got this, this cohesive mass of mm. independent characters connected to the hip who just go around. I, 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 you know, I, I, I've, I've had situations in different games where all of a sudden six completely uh, you know, uh, unrelated to, or you know, partially related people you know, are doing things like gathering around the same bedside of you know, someone you know, who's, who's seriously ill. And it just you know, It's like an interview panel gathered around them. Mm-hmm. Sort of no. Yeah, if this happened in real life, you'd be thrown out of the fucking room. <laughs> well, I mean, my other solution was that I'm off down to New Orleans with this book. Okay, well, if I was running the game, yeah, that character's doing that. Um, do you two want to maybe create new characters that that you know he's going to meet in New Orleans? Yeah. From my point of view, I've also been quite happy to, you know, sort of let the characters uh, split apart like that. Admittedly, going off to different corners of the world makes it different, difficult. Uh, but in a, a more cohesive campaign like that, I'm quite happy for each one to kind of follow their own storylines and so on, and then just bring them back into, you know, situations together from time to time. Uh, there is an issue with that approach, though, that if you've got four or five players and they're all going off and you're having an individual scene with each one and the others aren't involved, you know, if that's ten minutes with each one, you're, you're only playing for ten minutes out of the hour. My, my, my two usual solutions to that are, one, keep the scenes very short so you're cutting between the characters fairly quickly. And the other is, you know, get input from the other player character, from the other players at the table, like getting them to play NPCs that come up and so on. Mm. It's sort of right, okay, you're you're going to talk to a librarian down there. You know, all right, Matt, play the librarian. Mm. That works really well in Escape from Innsmouth, where you have the the part the party does shatter for the last yeah. part of the adventure. Um, they each go off on different parts of the raid, and then everyone else in the player group takes one of the NPCs from that group. So that you have your chance to play your PC, and then you're playing the NPC in everyone else's spotlight. Totally not player led, though. Well, no, totally not player led. <laughs> but it's an example of where that yeah, kind of thing happens. Yeah, it does. Yeah. yeah. One of the important things as a GM that you've got to learn if you're going to run this kind of game is the ability to let go. Uh, yeah. And this is quite a difficult one. It's a lesson that came hard to me because, you know, again, I, as I mentioned before, I, I learnt most of my, my GMing from, you know, running pre-written scenarios in the 1980s is about as far away from player-led gaming as you can get. I mean, my experience of player-led games would kind of go back to when I was running um, an ongoing Ars Magica game. And we started off with playing Mysteridge, which was kind of the uh, the introductory kind of covenant scenario and then we even played i kind of modded the original ravenloft scenario to it and we played through that and then i kind of handed it over much more to the players i I made some story up it was kind of a transition really from very structured scenarios to kind of halfway house to the point where the players were going to like grand tribunal and one of the players said to me that he was going to go ahead one of the players was playing this wizard called spiker and he was kind of a bit apart from the other um, wizards. And he rang me up um, between games and sort of said, you know, I think my character will go off to this um, this grand tribunal, which is like a grand conference of wizards, on his own. I was like, well, OK. We only met once a month, so I kind of 
pretty much forgot about this and a couple of months later when when they arrived at the the tribunal and i'd kind of i've got some story points to sort of throw in depending on what they did and uh, chris said to me he kind of prompt looked at me and prompted me and said i'm i'm there right so when the when the other players turned up there were only two wizards allowed in to be representatives of their covenant they had to, the, the people at the grand tribunal had to say well i'm sorry there's already one representative from your covenant here <laughs> so man the, the the other players were really pissed at this <laughs> if i'd had any kind of scenario plotted out for that it, it was totally derailed mm. i think i had some kind of storyline which i kind of threw in about them being framed for a murder this this character spiker ended up being framed for the murder and the other players didn't really know what was going on. I didn't really know what was going on either. And they interrogated Spiker. And things were getting quite heated. And uh, we all kind of went out in the real world. We all kind of went out for a walk. And uh, I talked to Chris <laughs> about what his character was going to do. We came back. He told me what he was doing. And so I took the other players into the other room. And then uh, said, right, you're going to go in and interview, interrogate Spiker now. And they just went in. And Chris was kind of slumped over a desk with a note saying... Why didn't you believe me? Dead. <laughs> Fantastic. Temper's got quite frayed. Oh, excellent. Um, and and, and yeah, I mean that that was player led to me. That was kind of you know yeah. players would would ring me up and sort of say you know this character Corin that I've been playing is just a companion. He's like a sort of uh, kind of upper class fighter kind of character. I think he might be like a an heir to the throne. We'd, we'd spin off whole storylines about that. Um, and we had, had, a, had a whole massive story arc about this character, you know, discovering that he was a was actually a king and, um, you know, recovering his birthright, really. There was no pre-written scenarios there. I think that is the big antithesis yeah. to player-led games, to be honest. Yeah, I, I think it's possible to do things like uh, deconstruct pre-written scenarios take elements scenes npcs out of them yeah Uh, but all too easy all too easily and readily the the players will sort of say what's down that road well there's nothing in the scenario down that road you either chop another bit of the scenario out and put it over there you know and and they end up there anyway i mean when we were playing you know some of the campaigns we've played at the club it's kind of felt like we ought to be kind of getting on to the next bit of the campaign now yeah Uh, and these things i kind of I'm kind of interested in and want to do well I hadn't better do those because that's not part of the campaign yeah it's that, it's that idea of what are we supposed to be doing yeah. yeah there's actually one of the bits I was doing recently is I was rereading one of the chapters from Masks from the Arthur for help with uh, writing a pulp scenario that I've been uh, mm. doing recently and I focused on right what, what are the particularly iconic scenes in the in the game and how are they handled in the text mm. So I had a look at the section at the top of the mountain, the Black Wind, and the bit under the pyramid. And particularly the bit under the pyramid where there's the door to the underworld. And it's a relatively short section that basically says, this goes outside the confines of this scenario, either kill anyone that goes down there in a gruesome manner, or make shit up. Um, Well, the make shit up's a good advice. Yeah. 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 But that could unfold into a whole... That could be the whole game, going yeah. down there mm-hmm. and making stuff up through that door to the underworld or wherever it was. Mm. Um, you know, if they decide to pursue that, you know, do they end up in some version of the Dreamlands and, and whole stories unfolding there? Mm-hmm. I mean, why not? Yeah, yeah. go um, to the Vale of Panath and work your way up from there. But how many keepers <laughs> are going to do that? They're going to think, 
you know, we've got a lot of this book to get through. We're only halfway through the book or in, on chapter three or something. We need to get to um, Kenya and, and yeah. Shanghai yeah. and so on. I, it's, it's kind of a weird thing. I've, I've seen this you know, a number of times. People almost forgetting that that you know gaming like this is supposed to be about play, not 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 just play as in playing a game, but play as in playfulness. They almost bring this work ethic to the game. The you know particularly with investigative scenarios, that there there is this problem to be solved, and this is what we're supposed to be doing. I've had this experience at a number of convention games I've run, where the the two reactions that amuse me the most after the uh, after games, and I've had this happen any number of times, is one, you know, the, the player will come up afterwards and say, well, what were we supposed to be doing? Yeah. I, I, well, the I, thing I that annoys know. me is when the two players sort of look at each other and laugh and say, oh, we're really derailing his plot here. Yeah, that was the, that was like, the other one. What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> that, that, that was the other one. The, 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 the players who've come up afterwards... Sorry, Paul, we'll get back on the story soon. Exactly, who've apologised <laughs> for derailing, derailing the game. Like, yeah, have you met me? <laughs> it's bizarre, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah. I remember one game um, with, with Rick at a convention, but I hadn't realised how much he improvised until I played a game with him, and he threw in some kind of telling, telling gas resonator-type aspect to the game, which was really kind of a red herring. It was, wasn't really what the, the scenario was about, but I was really fascinated with this, and I really pushed towards that. And we ended up going on a, a whole... Um, aspect of the scenario that he just winged but I wasn't aware that he was making it up I, I, at all I played that one with you I think, I think you actually. did yeah, yeah. and yeah. Um, and afterwards we were sort of talking to him saying oh that's really good and another group was sort of saying oh that underground base and everything like that and we were like what underground base we never went to an underground base <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and he just totally winged it and it was fantastic yeah but all the time we felt we were ploughing ahead and, and doing what we wanted to do and I think once you get that feeling of doing what you want to do rather than feeling you're being led by the nose through a plot. Doing what you want to do as a player is really fun and liberating and you feel like you're in a world that you can do anything you want to and you are playing a role that you you, you, you can fulfil and do all the things you want to do. I've said this time and again and I'll, I'll say it once more. You know, say it again, Scott. <laughs> when I'm preparing stuff like this, I don't tend to write stories for exactly that reason because stories... Bring you know, stories bring two problems when you you know, take them as a GM to the table. Um, one is that you know, the, the players won't do what you expect them to do. I mm. mean, that's just a given. They won't. So, so either you've completely wasted your time by doing this, or more perniciously, you'll try to make it happen anyway. That is by far the worst outcome because you'll get frustrated as a GM because you're trying to enforce this structure that is no longer fitting what the players are doing. And as players, you'll get frustrated because the GM's trying to railroad you. Mm. Uh, and that doesn't work. But you know, by not preparing that structure ahead of time, by preparing differently, so you're preparing that situation, you're preparing networks of NPCs, um, you're preparing NPCs with agendas, uh, you know what the secrets are, but you find different ways of feeding them to, to players depending on what they do, then you can you can still have that investigative-type Call of Cthulhu game. Yeah, I think but, it's very but, important to stress we're not saying don't do any prep. No. I mean, having all those the things you just said, and I think the game that I just quoted with Rick... I think, you know, he had a bunch of NPCs, he had a bunch of locations which he could kind of improvise around and bring in in different ways into what we were doing. So it's not like just going to the table with nothing in your head yeah. and a blank sheet. It's really not, is it? We're not no. We're not talking about that. I think we need to emphasise that because some people might interpret it as, oh, you just turn up and make stuff up. 
No, I mean, for, for my Cthulhu games, I will at least, you know, have a, you know, a, a page full of notes, usually bullet points and NPC names and perhaps a couple of relationship maps. But, yeah, I'll, I'll have that kind of stuff in mind and then I'll improvise around the rest of it. But, you know, particularly for an investigative game, you know, the, 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 the investigators are going out there trying to find a secret. You, 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 you may have that secret in mind. Well, you should have that secret in mind. But how they find it is completely open to the actions of the players, in my opinion. Yeah. So just saying that, you know, the only way, you know, of finding this particular information is to look in the journal hidden underneath the Vicans' bed. Well, if they never go anywhere near the Vicans' flat, they'll never find that fucking journal. But, you know, that, that might have a vital bit of information in there. Mm. So, you know, maybe they, you know, they, they, the uh, investigators have decided they're going to do, you know, something, you know, they're going to do less breaking and entering and more uh, interpersonal stuff. So at some point they talk to the Viscount's chambermaid and she talks about something she overheard once. You get the same information. Yeah, uh, just to be flexible. Yeah, the the important thing is getting that information to the players. You know, whether they find it in the journal, talking to the chambermaid, or you know, from some seance, it doesn't matter. Yeah, they, yeah. they don't need to do the specific thing that you had decided they had to do to get that bit of information. Yeah, if they do something else. Yeah, I, I ran with that kind of philosophy for four years when I was running Vampire LARP. Uh, I set up well, the core background for that was I set the city up with, I think it was three hundred. 56 different NPCs in the end. Did you write all of those? Yep. Wow. That took me a long time to do it. But that, that setup lasted four years of play. Yeah. And they had they all had different agendas. They had um, basically their shtick. They had a weakness that you could exploit. And um, they all had their own connections and agendas and so forth. And um, it was just a case of thinking, right, what what focus, what web do I want to focus on this month? That one. In which case, what bangers can I throw in? This one. And then I just waited for a PC to do something and I'll drop something on them. Hmm. Yeah, it's just the thinking of manners of which you can get information out there is you roll yeah. whatever they throw at you. To kind of wrap things up, uh, based on everything we've discussed, I mean, what what, what advice or you know, how would you go about trying to do a player-led Call of Cthulhu game? Well, the, fir- the first thing for me would be a limit. Um, when you say player-led, the worry is always that gonzo factor, as we said, that there are worries of things coming up. So... One establish a veto rule. Say what kind of thing, what how what you set the tone, guys. How do you want to play this? Do you want to play this um, really straight down the line, dark, serious horror, or do you want to be a bit more light-hearted? If you want, if Cthulhu can be that. Oh, it definitely yeah. can. I've, I've, I've run scenarios. I've run a scenario. I remember uh, back in university that was riffing off Reanimator an awful lot. They just went for kind of gods of oh. bloody body <laughs> horror. That was great fun. Yeah, you know, I'd say set, setting boundaries really is the is the first thing I would do. I wouldn't just necessarily just leave it completely open as to what's going to happen either. Um, in terms of a investigation, you know, you can set up a, a premise and then, like what we said, set up a situation and a premise. You know, something has happened. You know, there's a dead body in the in the drawing room or whatever. But then let the players um, go where they want. Yeah. Um, so don't don't start with nothing. Um, again, have a bunch of PCs and, and, and locations. But, you know, they might go to locations you haven't planned or go and talk to people that you haven't thought of or, or pick up on some sort of thread. Or or even better, they sort of start talking about what they think is happening and you can kind of um, embrace some of that. 
And uh, the, the other trick which I found has helped me an awful lot is, um, I mean, this works particularly well for convention games, but it'll work for home games just as well, uh, which is, you know, if things take a really unexpected turn uh, and you're struggling to think on your feet, take a break for five minutes, tell everyone you're going to have a cup of tea or whatever, spend that five minutes mulling over what's going to happen and chances are by the time you get back to the table it'll all make sense again. And for Call of Cthulhu, if there is that initial situation, you know, there's the dead body in the drawing room covered in slime and a black burnt hole in the ceiling. Why would your character want to get involved in this? Ask, ask the player, why would your character want to get involved in this and have them come up with some reason why their character is going to be invested in this. If it's going to be player-led, the player needs to think of a reason why they would want to be involved. Yeah. Like it's no good you telling them, because that's not player-led. So it's player-led while I own the house or, um, well, the dead character, you know, is my best friend, my wife, my brother, whatever it is. Well, Call of Cthulhu 7th Ed makes a lot of that easier because you've got those backstory elements as well, which you can draw upon and incorporate into that uh, in a collaboration between the player and the keeper. Sort of, you know, as a keeper, you can say, right, OK, well, you know, looking at your backstory, how about if your important NPC here is such and such mm. and, and pull that straight into what you had planned? More than that, I'm not quite sure what you'd do for a, a Call of Cthulhu game. I, I think a lot of other games are much better set up for a player-led game. I don't think there's anything that stops Call of Cthulhu doing it, and the proof I'd offer for that is... the, the, uh, the These are some examples well, that we can talk about explicitly. The early playtests for Call of Cthulhu 7th edition that you ran with me and Robin. Oh, right, OK. Yeah, th- those, those were improvised. All right, they weren't full scenarios, but it wouldn't, because we were testing certain mechanics. But the reason they weren't full scenarios wasn't because they wouldn't have worked as them, but because we sort of stopped bits once we'd tested out the mechanics we wanted. That's right. So we did start off with the scenario, didn't we? And it was really kind of hard work. And then we just kind of decided to revise it. And just I think we had a missing person. You just came up with a couple of characters that were tied to that missing person yeah. and then started investigating it. And by pushing roles and so on, kind of develop the story. Yeah. We, did, we did that later with chases as well, where we had a lot more of an input into right. What is the next obstacle that you run up against? Well, is this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, in a lot of those cases, we came up with the basic situation and location. Paul again came up with the uh, the kind of mythos threats that were involved. We worked out how they were tied in, and then we just ran with that. Mm. As a basic setup, that meant that we went. You know, uh, Paul had you know maybe a couple of ideas, but you know when he came to the table, or maybe it was stuff that you just made up on the spot. You yeah, know. probably a mixture of the two. Yeah, well, yeah. We, we, you know, we 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 chatted about it while we spent the fifteen minutes creating the characters, and then we just ran with that. And yeah, we, in some cases, we were getting two three hours of play out of that that was kind of coherent and fun. So yeah, I think you could organise a, a very player-led scenario on that, but you've kind of got to, to have the player characters tied together in some way and be yeah. motivated to pursue some sort of shared goal to keep them together. I, I know you, you talked earlier about having them you know, with individual scenes, but better that they're kind of tied together, or maybe it's the GM's job to keep them together to some degree. Hey, well, I, I think you and I can disagree on this one. I mean, I'm, I'm quite happy to have player characters spread all over the place and then just chop and change quickly between them. 
It's when it doesn't take so. It's when it doesn't yeah, take but, a short amount of time that it become it can become very boring well, for everyone else sat there watching. But, but that, that, that's why, yeah. The, the, the technique I use, and I, but I've, I've, I've actually written this into one of the scenarios in Nameless Horrors, is uh, to to set up mini cliffhangers within uh, the play. So okay. yeah, so someone is about to you know, open the door to you know a darkened room or something like that. You know, uh, so so you cut from that point to the next player. The next player, you know, is is searching around somewhere else, perhaps in a different building, they hear a strange noise from behind them, they turn around with their flashlight, you cut to the next player, and then you come back and resolve all Yeah, this. yeah, yeah, what you're talking about there, they're all playing the same scenario, they're all playing the same story, aren't they? Potentially, but, yeah, I mean... Um... Well, they're all playing their own aspects of the same scenario. What I was kind of hearing earlier was that they're all going off Doing five different right no no I mean they, scenarios. Uh, I'm, I'm, thinking, I'm, I'm thinking about, for example, you know, the sorcerer, uh, the, the Cthulhu Noir game I ran. You know, there, there was no expectation of there being a party there. Everyone had their own, you know, different things to follow. Hmm. But the backstory was all tied together. That you know, even if if a player character wandered off and, and explored their own little bit of it there, that it would bring them back around to interact with another character. Eventually, yeah, it's, it's a road to. It just depends on which PC you hit, depending on which road they took. Yeah. What would be a game that you don't think works well with this kind of structure? Because we've instead of talked about games that you think would work well with it, what wouldn't? The, the one barrier to you know, being able to improvise uh, stuff like this to me is um, the ability to improvise NPCs and threats on the spot. So any really crunchy game where there are you know where npc threats need to be perhaps designed ahead of time i mean there are certainly ways around this perhaps things like gerps or the hero system or stuff like that where you know you'd you'd perhaps want to tailor certain characters and you wouldn't necessarily want to improvise a set of stats off the top of your head now that's not to say you couldn't or you couldn't find a sample npc in one of the books and just mm. use that as a template but it becomes slightly more difficult than you know um improvising stuff like this is very easy in a game like you know for example you know dead of night or hot ball uh where you can just present a threat level as an npc yeah i think very linear structured campaigns really even more so than than scenarios make it very difficult you know whereas some campaigns are more flexible in the order and there's more motivation for the players to be kind of invested in it then i think that can work Pre-written campaigns are probably the most yeah. challenging thing yeah. to, to run in a player-led way. A lot of this comes down to you know, a matter of will, having the right players, just finding that kind of thing enjoyable. It's mainly falling at the GM's door to listen to the players and go with what the players are, are doing. And and it, it, no, it also relies a lot on the players as well, because you know if you have a particularly passive group of players or reactive group of players... Um, uh, then, you know, I, I, I've, I've had this situation in convention games as well where, you know, again, I've turned up with a situation, handed out pre-gens with, you know, fairly strong motivations and, you know, perhaps two out of the four people at the table look at this and they just sit there quietly and, mm. you know, when's the plot going to start? It's on your sheet, do something. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we've probably talked, well, I was about to say we've probably talked enough about this, but we've talked more than enough about this. <laughs> And we could probably talk all bloody night if we let ourselves. But we're not going to, are we? No. Uh, so if you want to leave us a comment, we'd welcome that. You can find us at blasphemoustomes.com uh, or you can find us on Facebook as uh, the Good Friends of Jackson Elias or on G+, or on Twitter as uh, the Good Friends of J.E. or indeed on uh, YouTube. 
So it's good night from me, cheerio from me, and farewell from me. Thank you.